Welcome to Dragon Talk. I'm Greg Tito. I'm Shelly Mazanoble. We are gonna sing every intro now. Thank you, seven-year-old girl. You're in luck. Ryan. We're gonna make a buck. And you're gonna edit this out. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are, because <laughs> we're gonna talk about D&D. We have an amazing guest on the show today, Matt Colville. Yeah, Matt Colville. Matt, give it up for Matt Colville. Woo! He is a, an uh, amazing Dungeon Master, a series of videos on the YouTube yeah. talking about how to Dungeon Master Very and running the game. Very generous with his time. Yes, and with the amount of words he can fit into videos. <laughs> yes. He's very generous. His videos are great. They're really, really good. They are. And it's, I'm like, God, this guy is putting in a lot of time and energy into helping people DM. Let's find out why. Yeah. Let's get let's get to the, the, the center of his psyche. Yeah. What's going on there? There's got to be a maze, and we're going to go through that maze. There's got to be a catch. To find the minotaur. You, fi- you see the maze, I see the catch. Oh. I'm just very cynical like that. Yeah. What do you want from us, Matt Colville? I, I find the deadliest catch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to uh, him in a bit, uh, but we're going to also talk about some Dungeons & Dragons products that are out there. Uh, of course, Storm King's Thunder yep. is uh, uh, an awesome adventure. You should all be playing it. Uh, giants take over the world and smash things. That's a quick, right. quick pricey. It's old. Yeah. Uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters, also in stores. If you wanted more monsters, but not just that, you wanted to know more about them, find your Volo's Guide to Monsters if you can. There's a few left, I'm sure, in some game stores with the alternate cover. You by, think? By Hydro 74. Maybe. You all might right. be able to find it. They're all sold out, as far as we know. Uh, sold through is the term. They're all sold through right. to no retail more in stores. No our warehouse. None. Gone. Okay. Out. Out the door. I think we might have the only copies, and we're holding on to them forever. I don't know. You and me. No. Wait. Well, okay. I'll get your copy. Oh, so Greg Tito does <laughs> All right. So I can get you, uh, like, the rare people I that I actually really like. I can get you a copy. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's why you don't have one. <laughs> I'm just letting you know for the people that I do like. Yeah, they have it already. So but I'll get you a new one. Yeah. Well, hopefully you enjoy your Uber home. Oh, oh snap. snap. Don't insult your carpool. Just don't do it. It's dangerous. Never it's the, the most party. dangerous game. Never insult the carpool. Uh, and of course, Tales from the Yawning Portal is coming Yay. April 4th in stores everywhere. Uh, you'll be able to buy it. It's got seven classic dungeons from D&D past, uh, all the way from Against the Giants, written by Gary Gygax himself, to Dead in Thay, I think, is the most recent one. It was a, uh, a fifth edition playtest adventure that uh, not that many people played, but we had. it has a really great dungeon in it. Kind of one of those uh, uh, eight and a half by 11, you know, rectangle shape uh, dungeons that's full of different areas and different factions and things going on. But so, the title. Yeah, you're dead. Dead in Thay. Like, I'm going to, oh, okay, I'm going to Thay. It's like Weekend and Bernie's in Thay <laughs> when you're dead. That's exactly the plot that goes on there. Uh, but they're all updated for 5th edition. Uh, there's Tomb of Horrors. There's White Plume Mountain. There's Hidden Shrine to Moachan. Some of these, like, classic dungeons that nice. you may have not played if you're like me. And you started playing uh, not in the 80s or not in the 90s. Not well, Okay, I started playing in the aughts. So if you start playing in the aughts, this is perfect for you. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Yep. yep. So stuff. pick it up. It's good. All right. All right. Sold. Uh, we're going to have a segment coming now. I'm not sure what kind of segment it is, so I'm just going to say, it is a segment. It could either be this or this. You shall find wow. out when the music plays. It's just, okay. It's like a, uh, you never know. Fun. Yeah. It's like rolling the dice. It is. Yeah. 20. 
Welcome to Sage Advice. We have another segment here with Jeremy Crawford. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, other than having the cold of doom for going on three weeks. Too much doom that you got from uh, uh, your, your time at OrcaCon, if I'm correct. Oh, I think I actually caught it before that, and it just kicked in like the day after OrcaCon, uh, which was a great timing. time going to the convention. Uh, but yeah. Day after. Nice. Boom. Well, you needed uh, uh, to have a cleric cast a spell on you, so you had some temporary hit points. <laughs> that's right. Because that's what we're going to be discussing uh, in this segment, uh, the rules and mechanics and some of the intent uh, of the design behind temporary hit points. Uh, so, Jeremy, what are some of the, the questions you get uh, on, on Twitter uh, or other forms of communication uh, about this subject? So temporary hit points are... Uh, they're a piece of the game where you'll often go many D&D sessions and never even encounter temporary hit points. And then suddenly a spell or something else in the game is giving you temporary hit points. And people will naturally be like, well, are they hit points? What, what does the temporary word mean? And so in the combat rules in the player's handbook, there's a section that talks about here's how these weird things work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty simple. They're essentially a second pool of hit points when you get them. Uh, they basically go on top of your regular hit points. And when you take damage, you lose any temporary hit points you have before you lose any of your actual hit points. It's almost like a blade of armor. or mm -hmm. and, and actually many things in the game use temporary hit points to uh, represent different things. It might represent uh, actual physical resilience. It might represent... You got this boost of morale that's making it so you can kind of grit your teeth through the damage you're taking. It can represent sometimes like a magical force field. Tempering hit points are super versatile in this way uh, in terms of what they can represent in the story, uh, which is why as a designer, I really like them because they're versatile and they also clean up after themselves. Mm. And what I mean by that is the rules specify that temporary hit points don't stack. So let's say two different spells are cast on you. They each give you temporary hit points. You only get one set of temporary hit points. And you, as the recipient of the temporary hit points, get to decide which ones you want. Uh, almost always you're going to pick the stack of st temporary hit points that's bigger. Sometimes you won't actually do that, though, because there are certain magical effects in the game that give you an additional benefit as long as you have the temporary hit points it provides. Mm. So... Uh, you might have only one temporary hit point left from this thing that gives you an aura of frost and then someone else casts a spell on you that gives you 10 temporary hit points and you might say, well, no thanks, I want to keep this one because of this other effect that relies on me having this temporary hit point. Uh, now, questions come up sometimes because we have spells in the game like heroism. This, mm -hmm. is, this generates actually probably the most questions when it comes to temporary hit points. Or as long as you're under the effect of that spell, at the start of each of your turns, you get more temporary hit points. And so people wonder, do I just keep getting more and more and more temporary hit points from this spell? Assuming I haven't lost any, you know, over the course of the past round uh, from damage that I've taken. And even a spell like Heroism that's giving you temporary hit points round after round after round abides by the general rule for temporary hit points in that they don't stack. Mm -hmm. So if you have two left from the previous round and the spell is giving you four more, well, you decide. Are you going to keep the two you have or take the four? You don't add them together. Okay. You never, ever add temporary hit points together. 
unless a rule in the game says do it. And this is a great example of uh, how D&D is an exceptions-based game. Right. This is When talking about rules, this is a theme I come back to often, where in the game we have general rules, which are most often represented by the combat chapter in the player's handbook, the spellcasting chapter, uh, the chapter on ability scores. That's where most of the game's core rules reside. Yeah, Those are sort of the general rules. And then you'll have spells and class features and feats and, and other elements that will show up and basically like overturn the apple cart. They'll say, all right, the general, the general rule says A, but I say B. And our universal rule is when an exception contradicts the general rule, the exception is the one that holds. Right. So the game is designed in a way that like, you know, nobody can uh, uh, do this ability except fifth level fighters and, uh, after that. Like it's, it's, that's what exception based kind of means. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, and... And so with temporary hit points, uh, whenever you're using them, whether you're a DM or a player, you never have to wonder, uh, do I get to add these together? Because the answer is always, always no, unless something specifically says essentially, hey, buddy, add these together. Right. And, and the game will be very upfront about it. There's no guessing. It's, the game will say, yep, these are really special. You get to add them. Um, so where do you think the confusion comes from? Because that seems very clear to me as written in so, the handbook. So, so the confusion comes mostly because people don't read the rule. <laughs> <laughs> I guess and, that's a theme of this segment yeah. uh, all the time. But. And, and, and again, this is, this is one where I'm, I'm very sympathetic about it because it is a rule that can come up so rarely. And so it will often cause a group to, you know, reach for their player's handbook to be like, no, what, wait, how again does this work? Right. Uh, and, and it's also unusual because uh, it has this very specific rule of they don't stack with themselves. Honestly, I think people also get a little thrown because uh, the word hit points is in the name. Mm. And when you uh, receive healing, you add hit points to other hit points. And so it's natural to think, well, these other things called hit points, you must add them together just like you add the other hit points together. Uh, that's why, actually, uh, we've talked sometimes about well, should we have changed their name? The names, mm. we adopted it from previous editions. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a kind of a design discussion we have sometimes, uh, you know, when we think, well... Sometimes if we, just the naming of something uh, creates confusion more than anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because names can, can often set up uh, expectations that aren't necessarily delivered by the rule. And sometimes that's because of the legacy of the game, or mm -hmm. sometimes we just picked a bad name. Right. Um, so where can you talk a little bit about where temporary hit points came from as far as uh, a design idea? Uh, you know, why they took the, something that was seemed very simple, you know, and complicated it a bit. Is it the versatility you talked about earlier? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're wonderfully versatile because it gives us a pretty simple way to model a sort of a limited extra resilience, uh, a limited way to endure more damage than you could normally. Mm -hmm. uh, and other than uh, the fact that they don't stack, they mostly work the way hit points work. And so uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it can be used in all sorts of different situations on the design side. Uh, if anything, uh, 
and I know, you know, groups who are not fans of temporary hit points would probably, you know, cringe hearing me say this, but mm. if anything, we actually should use it in more places in the game mm. uh, because that would then make it less unusual when you encounter them. Um, often the rules that most successfully vanish into the background, which is really ultimately what a rule should do. Right. I mean, rules, I've, I've said many times before, rules should be the butler essentially who's standing at the side of the room ready to bring you a drink when you need it. But when you don't want it, the rule stays out of sight. So you can focus on the story, focus on the jokes and everything else that makes the game great. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, everybody on D&D is aligned with the idea that like you don't want... Uh, uh, half hour of discussion of what the temporary hit points mean at the table <laughs> right. when you're in the middle of a fight against right. Strahd. You know, you want to be able to do it in a in a much more flowing, freely way. Yeah, and and most DMs, thankfully, will keep things moving. So yeah. even if there is a question, the DM will the DM either knows the rule or will make up an interpretation on the spot, and then you know maybe afterward they discover oh the the book says something different, and mm-hmm. then they can they can decide how to address that in their future sessions. Uh, but that's why you know DMs are so often pivotal in keeping things moving, making sure these rules questions don't capsize a whole session. Uh, but again, if temporary hit points were in the game more often, if they became mm-hmm. uh, something people were more accustomed to, many of these questions would start to drop away because right. everyone would be like, oh, yeah, we know how these work. Yeah, we uh, use it all the time. That's yeah. no big deal. Yeah. Now, you mentioned there were people who you know, may not be fans of temporary hit points. Is that something that you've encountered in, in play? Yeah, and I think, I think it's largely because uh, uh, some groups uh, understandably are not crazy about exceptional rules that kind of like – almost like a, a, a some kind of rodent suddenly pops its head out of a hole in the ground in the middle of your session and then demands that you remember how it works. Right. Um, so I think sometimes it's just not enjoying uh, the surprise that it brings. I mean, because temporary hit points also have a few other little wrinkles to them. Um, they can't, let's say you're at zero hit points and someone gives you temporary hit points. Temporary hit points are not going to revive you. Uh, mm, if you have... Okay, that's important. If you have zero HP... And you could you could theoretically get you know one million temporary hit points. You're still unconscious <laughs> at zero HP. What about a million and one? A million is still not going to oh, wake you up, man. Uh, but what that does mean is if a person drops a bomb on you that does a million H, you know, million damage while you're at zero hit points, you're not going to take any damage because the temporary hit points will absorb oh, okay. it all. So you can suppose, still benefit from temporary hit points while you're at zero right, hit points. Because you're unconscious, you're not dead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You, yeah. Right. Your yeah. Uh, your body wouldn't take any more damage. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I mean, I've said I've said publicly that there are a number of places in the game where temporary hit points could have been deployed. Uh, a great example is uh, the druid's wild shape. Mm. Uh, wild shape right now, when you switch into a beast form gives you the hit points of that beast form. And that works. I mean, that's that's been working fine for the last couple of years. It does create a few wrinkles, though, in the system. Um, it creates situations where you effectively can hit zero hit points multiple times because there are various places in the rules that will say things like, when you, when you drop to zero hit points, something happens. Mm. Well, with the Druid, you have, like, two pools of hit points. So you're actually hitting zero twice. Now... The, the, the wild shape rule mostly accounts for this. But one way to avoid any questions related to this kind of thing would be to make you get temporary hit points when you 
turn into the wild shape mm. equal to the beast's hit points. That would also then control some stacking. Uh, it means you couldn't then also benefit from a temporary hit point giving spell on top of While the extra you hit points are that in you're in wild shape. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and that's because temporary hit points has that great uh, control mechanism built into it. And I speak so positively of it, partly because as a as a rules developer, I always have a soft spot in my heart for any rule that cleans up after itself. You know, it's like it it shows up, it might make a little bit of a mess, but when it's done, it leaves things tidy. Right. Uh, and that that to me it's sort of it's a tight uh, process. It's it's doing its job well and it's not creating collateral damage. And it clears itself off of your character sheet too. Yes. Like it's like okay, you have this little note, you mm-hmm. got eight temporary hit points. Oh, those are gone. Yeah. And it's off. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have to think about that spell ever again. Sometimes uh, people, too, like the idea of having a low magic game, um, and one that doesn't uh, rely on traditional magical healing. Temporary hit points are a way that you could represent non-magical healing. So, mm-hmm. you know, where you're, you're not necessarily uh, healing wounds, but you are inspiring somebody uh, giving them the will to fight on, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Again, they're still gonna, they're still gonna drop uh, when their actual hit points hit zero, but the temporary hit points can represent uh, this this pool of extra toughness, right? Or a uh, a shield of some kind, mm-hmm. or some kind of yeah, armor, a mystic shield. It's a way I've seen people do mm-hmm. that in uh, in games uh, that are low magic as well. That their their armor actually has a hit point pool. On top of it, so their their bodies may not be getting hurt, but mm-hmm. their armor is less effective because yep. of the wounds that they've you know they've taken in battle. Yeah, I've seen that model. But I also, I mean, hit points are also just an interesting idea too because it's it can mean so much. I mean, uh, it, it means actual damage, blood spurting, kind of you know cuts and wounds. Uh, but then when a you know psychic damage that a bard does with the, with the insult. You know, what does that mean? It's probably more the demoralizing kind of damage that means, okay, well, they're not physically hurt, but they're they're no longer capable of doing battle. Right, right. And, you know, some groups uh, would describe in the narrative that the psychic damage is actually is is physically hurting the person's brain. Uh, but the rules don't say that in many cases. I've uh, never been able to insult someone that good. <laughs> tried, tried many times, but I've never been able to hurt someone's brain. Yeah, <laughs> and because yeah, there are there are particularly some magical effects in the game where the damage they're dealing could almost be thought of like damage to the soul, damage to your will to live. Yeah. Uh, so morale. Yeah, yeah. So hit hit points are a are a fascinating mix of the physical, the abstract, the spiritual, the psychological, uh, but that, you know, going back to first edition, a pretty brilliant uh, piece of design uh, because of how simple they are and mm-hmm. and uh, how many different things they can represent and just keep you know keep the game moving. And temporary hit points are really just an extension of the hit point design, uh, but again, yeah. have that kind of added versatility because. They can be layered on top of uh, regular hit points. Interesting. Cool. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for uh, going over that topic. We'll be doing a lot more. Uh, it's interesting. I made me think so much more about hit points and <laughs> how it is the uh, maybe the core mechanic of what makes D and D D and D. You know that and, and experience points and that progression. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that in another sage advice, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. 
All right. That was a segment. That, that was, was amazing. Great segment. I really liked how it segued into this portion of the podcast. Uh, now let's call up Matt. We got to get him on the phone. Uh, this segue is not doing very good. Hello. 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 All right. Well, we are joined uh, by Matt Colville. Hi, Matt. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, we also have Shelly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shelly, great to hear from you. Great to hear from you. I'm a big <laughs> fan, as you know. So, wow. uh, uh, yeah, Matt, we asked you on because you've been making, uh, uh, you know, among all your other amazing uh, activities and uh, accolades, uh, making D&D videos, uh, uh, advice, uh, how would you describe them, like advice videos? Really just uh, how to be a dungeon master and why it's awesome and trying to demystify it and make it seem like a straightforward experience that's also a lot of fun. Yeah, and you're and you're calling on your wealth of knowledge uh, of playing D and D for a long time, as well as uh, to knowing all of the additions, as well as uh, uh, your other jobs uh, of a fiction writer and a uh, writer for video games, right? Yeah, I'm a busy dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, as it turns out. So, uh, so just real quick, so people get some some frame of reference. Where where are you? You're working at Turtle Rock. Yeah, I'm the lead writer and the the junior writer and the writer i'm all the writer at uh turtle rock studios we made a game called left for dead and a game called evolve uh which i'm hugely proud of and we're also doing a lot right now um we've got a lot of projects in the in process but i'm working a lot on the vr space so there's a lot of really interesting projects happening there that i'm super interested to show people but you can't yet (laughs) not yet no oh god you can show us that. We do have a bunch of, if no. you have a, a Samsung phone and you have the little goggles, you can do the Gear VR stuff. Check out Face Your Fears. That's Turtle Rock's kind of uh, premier VR title right now, and it's doing crazy numbers. It's one of the most downloaded uh, VR experiences. Oh, that's cool. Well, we'll get more into uh, to VR uh, later in the show. Uh, but as a quick introduction, we always like to ask people what your first um, you know experience was with Dungeons & Dragons uh, and fantasy role-playing. Like, What was it that... Uh, hooked you in and made you feel like uh, this was something you wanted to do uh, going forward? Yeah, I think my first experience was, uh, my first real experience actually playing the game, because I think I was aware of it just in general, mm-hmm. was Castle Amber, Chateau d'Amberville, which is an uh, wow. old classic module. I think it's X1 or X2. And my friends from high school that I knew at school, uh, this is kind of the transition away from hanging out with the kids that in your neighborhood and hanging out with kids at school. Right. And I, they all they were really super cool. And I wrote in their yearbook saying, "Hey, if you guys are gonna get together, let me know." And they did, and we played D and D. Oh wait, and it was fantastic. It actually happened. Wow. When you say that in the yearbook. Yeah. I've written a yeah. lot of stuff in people's yearbooks that never happened. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I just, I said, hey, give me a call. And they did. And they said, hey, we need someone for, and I, I remember um, sitting, knowing, it's funny how even, this is 1980, I can probably pinpoint the month based on a Dragon magazine that came out. But, um, <laughs> cool. It's the it's the one that has, um, I think it's like 109 or 114, had the plethora of paladins articles it's, in it. And I knew really nothing. I knew, I, it's funny how much you just absorb about the game having literally never played it i knew that there were different roles right mm. and so when my friends were like well what are you gonna play i said well what do you guys need like, oh you're I, that I, guy Love i didn't guy. really know like what uh what the roles were but i knew there were roles and kind of by you know 
what's what I'm looking for? They, they lived vicariously through me because this new Dragon magazine had come out with nine different paladins, paladins for every alignment. And they were all super cool, and my friends wanted to play them, but they couldn't because they had characters. So they're like, you should play one of these things. And I was like, yeah, sure, well, I don't care, whatever. And that sort of became a lifelong love affair, not only with the game, but also with that class. I love paladins. I always have. Mm. I probably always will. And it was an incredibly fun... It's a, uh, Chateau d'Amberville, Castle Amber is a... It's a funhouse dungeon. Crazy stuff happens in that thing. And so that set the tone for me. I, I, I understood Dungeons & Dragons to include a wide variety of things, including this crazy, wacky stuff. And there was a lot of party conflict. We were 15 years old, and we fought about a lot of stuff, and our dungeon master split the party up a couple of times, and so that was not, at the time, that did not seem weird to me. Right, it's so like the saucer my section, life, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah just, going away from I the guess it can do that. Yeah, you it just happens once, the, and then you yep, do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, you just assume that that's now that's a thing that it can do. And so all my life when people have said, don't split the party, I'm like, uh, you, you, you can certainly do it. Yeah, and sometimes well and entertainingly. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, as long as yeah. And it's funny also thinking about like how, you know, my DM was 16 or 17, same age as I was, but he was very deftly able to split the party and make sure that each group, like just as one group was getting bored sitting there watching the other, he would ramp up the action with the current group and then pause us. Cliffhanger. Right, exactly. So we were like, oh, we were waiting to see. And then that made, that meant we would sit there for an hour, an hour and a half while the other group played. And we were engaged because we had this cool moment in our pockets that we were waiting to do. Oh. And he could just go back and forth between those two things. And who taught him that? Nobody. <laughs> right? That's just the thing he figured out. And so I'm always surprised that uh, people are getting into D&D in their 20s and 30s. And I'm like, wow, you know, we did it when we were teenagers. And my, my favorite DMs, many of them are the DMs, I, I, uh, people I learned almost everything from when we were teenagers. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I... I fall into the category of learning how to play in the 20s and 30s, uh, even yeah. though I was... Like, I think that's common now. Yeah, I and mean, like, like you, I was fascinated with D&D as a young kid, you know, uh, and learned about it and read about it and, you know, was a Lord of the Rings reader and, and, and basically voracious reader of all fantasy. So all those things were in my head, and I always wanted to play. I just never had that core group of friends that were like, yeah, let's do this. Um, you know, and I didn't find that until I was like an adult and was like, oh, wait, I, I can I can find my own friends now. <laughs> well, the amazing thing, like having now worked at several video game companies, well, several, two, where uh, <laughs> a couple where um, it feels like several where I often am the person saying, hey, let's play D&D. And because I, I come from the tabletop background. Yeah. And I am often among there's only like if there's eight people at the table, there's three of us that have played before. Mm -hmm. And the rest have literally and not only never played D&D. In many cases, never played any tabletop game. And the funny thing is, when you, it changed my perspective of players and the game and everything because I always assumed that this certain behavior from that player or this other behavior from this player was because we were 15. And it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> like, it doesn't, doesn't matter how old you are, you slot into these archetypes. And some, some players are, you know, they want to take zero risks, but they want 100% of the treasure, right? That, I thought that was just something that happened when we were 15, but nope, it still doesn't. Like, there's always characters that just want to uh, see the world burn, and it doesn't matter, you know, how old you are. Mm -hmm. And it's fun watching 20-year-olds and then 30-year-olds just the first time they've played, but it's just exactly like we're all 15 again. Yeah, I think Shelly just admitted to me that she's that first category if people want none of the risk. I don't. I love my character <laughs> yeah. too much. Uh, hang in the back of the party. I'm a wizard. You ch well, you're you're squishy. Yeah. You're a squishy wizard. You can't be taking risks. No, but I do my part, and, and I deserve my share. <laughs> yeah. 100% I cast it. my one spell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to donate it, okay? Yeah. 
That was fun. I mean, that's one thing I really enjoyed about uh, the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide because I feel like that might have been the, and correct me, you know, but that where they had those archetypes all aligned for the for the Dungeon Master to kind of understand player types and how it all worked and whether mm-hmm. you are more this way or that way and how Dungeon Masters could try to juggle uh, the different priorities of your game based on who is at the table. Um, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> it's the only edition of D anD D that I think did a, 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 a that tackled. And I think success, it's the only one that tried, and it was it, it succeeded in telling the players what their job was. Yeah, like, like this is your role. It, you know, it, it's if I'm a if I'm a if you're a wizard, you cast spells. It's like okay, that's a pretty broad. There's a lot of spells. Right. <laughs> like which ones should I be casting? And when you play fourth edition, it says nope. You're a defender. Your job is to do this, and and you're a striker, and your job is to do that. And I think that con- that context hugely helps new players. It does. It does. And I think it was also, I mean, it got, I think, maligned uh, because it was very similar to uh, the way people approached uh, MMOs like World of Warcraft. Uh, uh, and that there was. I think I have a pet theory about that. I think that uh, I, did, I did a whole video I on know. the fourth edition I very recently, it. and it was a huge smash. It was, like, it's one of my most popular. It was videos. a good video. Well, thank you. Um, I, and I didn't mention this in the video because I felt it was something of a red herring or a distraction. But, like, I personally, my experience was a lot of tabletop gamers I knew suddenly found themselves unable to play because all their friends were in World of Warcraft. So there was this huge resentment in the channel, like well before a fourth edition was released, this huge resentment in the, in the, uh, you know, in the customer base toward that game. Mm. So when this new RPG comes out and it's got the D&D name on it and it's not, it kills all the sacred cows that they loved. They blame this thing they already hated. And I was like, "I, I don't think that's, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think fourth edition was a great game. It was, but I think it was it was hard uh, uh, to, to parse for a lot of longtime fans, and I think yeah, you, yeah, it wasn't, it didn't make any concession to oh, you've played D and D before, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was it was almost too radical in its changes uh, for its time, and I, I liked that you uh, in that video expressed ways to use uh, the parts of fourth edition that did work or that did work for for specific situations and how to bring it. And forward. I'll tell you, it was hugely successful, not only in the sense of like it got a lot of views, but also tons and tons of people are every day messaging me, commenting on that video, saying, wow, this is amazing. My game is already better. And I'm like, yeah, because I think that uh, one of the great things about 5th edition is how easy it is to mod. I think that was one of Mike Merles' goals, is to bring bring back that feeling of, I'm going to roll my own. If there's something missing, I'm going to make it up myself. And it's easy to do, and as a side effect, it's easy to steal from fourth edition. As a result, yeah, like you don't, it doesn't go the other way. Like fourth edition was incredibly difficult to mod. If you want to make a new class, you know, good luck coming up with the seventy powers. You, you come up with. <laughs> I right? did that but, for a while with for for you know third party. Uh, well, you're a things you are as well. a, you're a better man than I am. Yeah, I, I was like, no well, it was way actually am fun. I going to try that. I mean, some of that, some of that, uh, uh, you know, it was actually I, I I heard this said by multiple freelancers at the time that it was it's fourth edition to them. Uh, felt that it was much more fun to write and design for than it was to play. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I, I know that it's definitely, um, I mean, this is turning into a fourth edition uh, podcast. Well, it was one of the most recent videos you had, so hey, Sure, 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 yeah. It's definitely, there is a huge disparity, and this is not, I don't know what the solution for this is, I mean, other than fifth edition, but there is a huge disparity between what fourth edition was like to read and how it was to play. Yeah. Like when you, but that's, I think, um, one of the weird things about D&D is it's always had this kind of allure where a certain kind of nerd opens up the player's handbook or the DM's guide and kind of falls in love with this illusion that these rules are describing a world, mm. right? Like you read the spells and you can imagine people casting them because they use natural language to describe how the spells work. But then you get to fourth edition and it's like, no man, it's just a reference manual. 
Yeah. This is not something you're supposed to sit and read recreationally. And it feels but like it people, feels like oh, you go three spaces, you know, you, you yeah, collect, exactly. uh, collect your money. So many abilities. My friends and I were like, I don't know. I got to pick something, and none of these things make any sense to me. So I'll just pick this one because it's got a cool name. And then there would be. I saw this almost every week for the first like year and a half. Somebody would go, Oh, 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 I get it. <laughs> as they as they tried to, as they finally were able to. I mean, they understood mechanically what the power did, yeah. but they didn't understand what the point of it was. And then when they saw it happening, the, the light bulb went on over their head, and they're like, "This is super cool." Right. And so that was, the, I think, one of the problems with fourth edition is I thought it was a lot of fun to play, but it was not fun to read. And I think that's something that there's a whole huge—I don't know how big it is now. I hope it's smaller now. Huge contingent of consumers for whom Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games are things they buy and read and do not play. Yes. And those people were not happy with 4th edition. And it's funny because you, I feel like these are all conversations I had, you know, eight years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that was a big concern at the time that I was like, oh, well, these are things, you know, people buy and collect these books for that reason. I remember, you know, one of the reasons why I loved it when I was a kid was exactly what you described. Like this felt like this was describing an alternate world. It felt like it was yeah. something that if I had all the right tools and had, you know, the imagination, I could, I could go into this world. Um, yeah, especially like some of the Gygaxian stuff yeah. that he wrote. Like, so the D original DM's Guide really felt like, oh, yeah, if you have Wolfsbane, it will cure lycanthropy. And you're like, oh, that's just a thing that happens. <laughs> right. Like, it right. didn't feel like you were reading game rules. It felt like that's just the way the world works. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, I think that's, that's always been, I've known, I've had, you know, many friends of mine that are like, oh, they want to, they'll come to me and like, oh, you're a dungeon master. Great. Hey, can you run this game for me that I've bought and read and never played? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, I'm like that's crazy. Like like you you run it. <laughs> like 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 that's that whole my, my whole. You. If you've watched any of my videos, the whole point is just you do it. Yeah. Uh, it's but there's a lot of people out there for whom, you know, Shadowrun or Legend of the Five Rings or right. you know uh, Star Wars uh, Age of Empires is all stuff they've read and never played. And to me, that's like. You know, it, it has to work at the table. It does. It does. So yeah, uh, a lot of your videos have focused on 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 how to DM, and I think it's it's a noble uh, pursuit uh, because it is. I you know we sometimes feel like that is a limiting factor of of, of D and D's oh, popularity sure. yeah. is the fact that yes, yeah. there's a lot more people who are willing to sit at a table and kind of experiment and play and roll some dice, and they can get that far. But it's that extra. Uh, uh, pressure or or uh, spotlight uh, uh, when you're DMing uh, that that people find difficult. They can't quite get over that cliff. So I appreciate. I'm that. happy to be uh, accused of being noble, uh, but <laughs> I'm also I'm also I have to tell you like this is I, a lot of people online are like oh it's this is really it's amazing how how generous you are with your advice and your time and I'm like no I just want to play. <laughs> want more? And I don't. I, so I need more DMs. <laughs> like I want to play D and D, and the only way I'm going to get to do that is if I literally make more dungeon masters. And so that's like it's a purely selfish motivation on my part nice. to just Works see more us. people. And so I always people on Twitter every day now, which is kind of phenomenal. Um, people say I just ran D and D for the first time this weekend or last night, and it was amazing. And my players had a lot of fun, and I wanted to thank you. And I always say the same thing. I always say, "That's awesome. You are amazing. I knew you would do it. <laughs> and now go tell your players that it will soon be their turn." Yes. You know, because yes. it's if that's that cycle. We have to. We can't allow the world to get divided into, uh, you know, dungeon masters and players. Everybody should get up to bat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we were yelling at Shelly because she was crinkling a wrapper. We have like really good high tech mics that are now uh, picking up everything. Used to that. I know. That's why. So I shouldn't eat an apple. Is what you're saying? Yeah, we should not do that. Okay. <laughs> 
But I think you're right, man. I think it, it, it is that thing where it's uh, uh, mystified for some folks. Even people who have played at the table for a long time oh, yeah. uh, don't want to cross the screen, as it were, uh, uh, and, and take up that mantle. Me. You know, why? Why does that scare you? Because I don't want people to not have fun, and I would be the reason why. Oh. Yes. I, they would have fun. I well, I, I will say I watched your videos, and I love your videos. I, oh, thank you. I really love. I loved everything about them. That it was just. I mean, I got sucked right in. Like, well, I, maybe I do want to do this. I love the right? illustrations. I love the way that you explain things. That it's just like, no, we're doing it. This is how you're going to do it. Pick up this yeah, pen I mean, and do it. <laughs> I think that like, <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy that you had a positive reaction to the videos. But if you don't run the game, then ultimately you were telling me that I am a failure. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. So it's on you. It's up to, it's up to you to be, be like, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe I can do this thing. And, I, we, you know, it's, it's a super... The great thing about being a dungeon master is that, like, there are so many different disciplines that all factor into Dungeons & Dragons. Like, uh, it, writing, painting, drawing, math. Uh, you know, cartography, geology, right? There's so many things that you can be a really good DM and only be good at one or two of those things. I, my, one, of my, one of the DMs that I've spent most of my life trying to emulate, who started when he was a teenager, he was dyslexic. Like you think of um, you think of Dungeons and Dragons as being a very writerly medium, mm. right? Because you have to you start with a an outline and what your adventure is going to be, and you and you write. People always ask me, how do I write my notes down? And it's like I'm pretty sure my friend Brad just like maybe he wrote stuff down. I don't know because he uh, he always had a block when it came to reading when it came to reading and writing. And he was an amazing dungeon master. So I think that it's just a question of finding out how are you going to yeah. be a DM. Everyone has their own style. Yeah, I've exactly. Seen a like, lot of DMs come in really, really prepared, and they have everything written down, and all the maps are done, and and then there's other ones that seem to just come in and wing it. Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe your style is very kind of you know, maybe it's writerly, or maybe it's uh, maybe it's uh, artist. You know, a lot of uh, no, cool drawings. Or I have you know, I have a friend of mine who <laughs> in my in my game who is getting ready to DM at her new job, and she has this huge folder. Like the first thing she did when she decided she wanted to DM was. She just created a folder on a computer and went on the internet and started grabbing every cool fantasy-related image that kind of struck mm. her imagination, and that's kind of her like her reference board now. Oh, that's and cool. It's, that's a really that's a cool idea. way of. It's just something that she looks at and it gives her inspiration and it makes her want to run. And I think that you know it's but players are um, players they like playing D and D. They like rolling dice. They mm -hmm. like making characters. It's the, being a dungeon master is not that hard. And in some cases, it's just getting out of the way and letting them, you know, argue with each other and figure out what to do. And you sit back and you're like, wow, it's been 30 minutes. I literally haven't said anything. This is easy. That's my secret. Just let them. Don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, let, yeah just, just listen. Let the, yeah, just, just let the boat sail. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So I think that uh, there's a million different ways to be a dungeon master. And it's just, I think, I mean, definitely there are people I've known in my life who are like, that person should not be a DM. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of people are those people? Are they um, named Shelly Mazanova? for a friend. <laughs> Like, that's a good question. Like, I can, without naming uh, names, like, my friends who I just know that person would not be a good DM, I think it has to do with, like, um, just being a consumer rather than a creator, if that makes any sense. Like, mm -hmm. there, there are people in my life I know that are just purely consumers. They're not, they don't, they don't, like, whatever happened in their lives, they never had that spark of creativity. So they're only really able to like they're net. Doesn't matter how much they love Star Wars, they're never going to write any Star Wars fan fiction. It would never occur to them, <laughs> right? Well, there are like, some creative people who say that too. Let's be honest. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no. So I think that there's. I think that it's just generally like, how do you have an imagination? If you do, then I think you're ready to go. 
But if you're purely just a consumer, then I think, yeah, maybe it's best that you stay on that side of the screen. Yeah, but I, even, I mean, I, I might even challenge that too because I think that's one of the the, the beauties about you know tabletop role playing is that here's you know you you could be a you know I'm trying to think of the least creative job you have like a janitor, an or accountant, yeah, an accountant, right? And you know that's that's your life, and you don't ever you know you never wrote plays or wrote novels or, or did anything else in your own time. But like you gotta you gotta remember pretending when you were a kid. And, yeah, and, that's true. Yeah, and how much and, yeah. you had fun with that. Maybe some people don't. Maybe some kids don't have a positive. Well, experience. also I think that like, but I'm like, here's a way to do that. You know, in your adult life, and how how beautiful that is. How I how play feel. is lost when we're socialized as adults yes. is something that uh, I think that the rise of the gaming industry in general, but tabletop role playing especially, is is cutting a fight against that. Like that, you know, it doesn't matter. I completely if agree. Like it's been, the rise of nerddom and by association, Dungeons and Dragons yeah. has given a whole. Now, at least, like, I think two, if not three generations of kids permission to have fun in that way as adults. Yeah. And yeah. it turns out to be just a ridiculously stupid amount of fun. And so it taps into that. Uh, it taps into that era of your childhood when it seemed like anything was possible. And it seemed like the movies that you went and saw were real. Mm. And they were just those were real things happening on the screen. And I think like I have a friend of mine who. Um, my friend Lars, who has been in my game for now many years and is on, there are episodes of where we live streamed our game that you can watch on YouTube. And Lars is a very kind of taciturn dude. He, does not, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't role play in the sense of like speaking in character, but because he knows, and I have saw in him, I'm like, this guy could be a good DM. This guy has what it takes. That guy, he's, he's, the, he's the director of our quality assurance team. And that act of being the guy in charge, being the person that when he talks, his team has to listen, that is one of the things that makes your life easier as a dungeon master. And he is uh, in the process of getting ready to start his first game. Cool. And he said, I'm just letting you know right now, I am not going to act. And I'm like, Lars, <laughs> the, like, like one of the best DMs I ever played with, never spoke in character, never did any of that. And he's, I, would, I would still do anything to play in that guy's game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own style. I think that that is something to to, to underline too. Like, there's no there's no right way to do no, anything. No, yeah, no. I mean, if you want to run a game, like I have friends of mine that run games that are highly tactical, and they're all about fighting on the grid, and I love those. And there are other friends of mine that will just want to do nothing but you know narrative soap opera games, and they're fantastic. Yeah, and it's just a question of like, and sometimes I think uh, dungeon masters give it a shot. And it doesn't work out, and they think it's because of them or the game, and really it was just because of the group. And that same exact game, a different group of people would have had a lot of fun with. That is very true. So how do you? What's what are some tips on like you know as a dungeon master recognizing that you know uh, a player A just might be oil and water with player B, and you yeah, know that's tough. I'm really lucky in that I have like like way more because of my job. I have way more. Pe there are way more people at Turtle Rock Studios that, that want to play than there are spaces. So I can sort of pick and choose and curate uh, the players. But for me, I really I really feel like the best. I don't know. This might be heresy. The best D and D group is a group that plays games among which are D and D. So like mm. it. If, if everything, if our getting together and knowing each other is dependent on D&D &D being fun, that is a burden I don't think the game it, it can shoulder. I don't think any game can shoulder that. You get together on whatever it is on the weekend, on Thursday night, or whatever after work, and you play games, and sometimes it's D&D. And then that becomes a healthy gaming group over time. And if it turns out that this, this campaign isn't working out, you can stop, and you didn't just destroy the group. There are other games to go play. I see. And that's that's, to me, a big part of, like, 
the sociology of D&D is the idea that we are a group and we get together and we play games and D&D is one of them because I don't think like I don't know how Matt Mercer does it like that dude's been running D&D every week with one or two exceptions for the last three years and I couldn't do that I don't think I would need a break yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's, there's he's now beholden to it now at this point. Right. But yeah, yeah. Now he's now he's the. He yeah, can't the, take a break they, if he wanted no, to. No, he, he cannot. No, he can. That's literally there is many many times I've talked to him and Liam about yeah things I would do with that show, and they're like Matt. It's just it's not a question of do we want to do it. I'm like, yeah, you guys, you you built that plane in midair. There's not uh, <laughs> there's not really yeah. there's not really a chance like you can't really land it and then take it apart and put it back together again. Because this uh, is a uh, D and D conversation, I thought for a second you were talking about planes of existence. <laughs> 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 I really had like a moment of like, what, what? is he talking about? What is he talking about? Oh, no, yeah, they, oh. they, they, I missed they, that episode. <laughs> they're, uh, they're throwing the rails in front of the train as it hurdles down the track. And, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, I really like. I, thank God for a critical role because that is the thing I've been now. I've been running D and D almost every week for about a year and a half. Which which probably the mm, oh, it certainly run. ranks among the longest periods of time I have run uninterrupted. Uh, usually it's like four to six months on and then someone else takes over and runs their game. But Critical Role is a huge part of my ability to keep running without getting burned out. Because anytime I'm starting to feel burned out, I just turn on Critical Role and watch it. And I'm like, wow, yeah, this is what I want to do. Right. Now I remember. Right. It's oh, inspiration. It's inspiration. Super inspiring. Yeah, super inspiring. And it's just it gives you that kind of I feel like I'm a player by proxy. Right. And be, there's no for me, there's no better way to rejuvenate my my dungeon master motivation than to be a player. Yeah. yeah so when did you switch over to DMing? You said you started off as a player. It was it, it was probably it was I would say it was several months, but it, it seemed like a long time, but it probably wasn't in reality. I remember uh, the probably the Christmas of I probably started playing early. It would have been like May June, and that Christmas, my friend John, who was my DM, got me a DM's guide for Christmas, oh. and he wrapped it up and he wrote he wrapped it up in like brown uh, like brown uh, paper and wrote in runes on it, like in dwarven oh. runes, like in Futhark. He wrote for an aspiring dungeon master, oh. and so that was. Uh, that was, so it was probably about six months, I would say, before. And it was really, I remember seeing my friend John's map. Like, he'd been running for a while. Mm. And he had a map of his world, but he didn't show it to us. In the sense of, like, it was huge. It took up a whole wall of his room. Wow. So if you wanted to go check it out, you, you could. You could go one there and just look at it. But you didn't, he didn't have a handout version for the table. It was just he knew what the world looked like. And, and it was up to us to kind of piece it together based on his description. And then I was like, when I saw it, I was like, holy crap. And I was just amazed. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to build a world like that. And it was yet again another instance of having done it a certain way the first time. I didn't know there was any other way. Like, he stole names from everything. He had a, he had a desert in his world called Shai Hulud. And I was like, I think I just read Dune. And that's a reference to Dune. And I was like, oh, does that mean there are like sandworms here? Or is that like the name of the desert? And and very quickly, I just learned that like, you know, this isn't a product being made by a corporation where there are lawyers. Like, I can do whatever I want with this. Yeah. I can steal whatever cool name or cool idea I want and stick it in the world. And if I had seen someone who was really super anal about making the game totally original, I would have thought that's what the game was. But seeing my friend John just stealing from everything he thought was cool, and in weird ways, like, this was a name of a creature in Dune, but he named a desert after it in his world. I'm like, oh, man, that's amazing. I want to do that. It kind of stuck in his craw as being like, oh, that's something that means desert to me, so I'm going to 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. That's a, that would be a cool name for a desert, he thought. And I was just like, wow, that's that kind of a, a free form, like, take what you want and use it how you want. And who cares? Yeah. Who cares about being original? Make it, you may, care about making it yours. Uh, that had a huge impact on me. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to build a world. So I wanted to build a world more than I wanted to run the game, if that makes any sense. That makes total sense. I'm gonna I want to touch on that thread in a second, but I want to talk a little bit more about this map on his wall. I know I'm kind of obsessed with that. Yeah, did he draw on the wall itself? No, he had um, he had like butcher paper basically. Oh. Just a whole a whole wall of his room was just the map of his D and D world, and That's it so was obviously like I met him when he was I was um, 16. He was a year ahead of us. He was 17. He'd probably been working on it at that point for like four years. That's amazing. And so it was this super super detailed world, and like we could you know basically point at the map and just say we want to go there and it was like that might be an adventure but we but he would have content there was a, he was great at providing the illusion that he had already thought of all this stuff like yeah so yeah yeah very well i mean that that to me that was um this was 1985 86 and there wasn't there was greyhawk and that was it there wasn't the Forgotten Realms. There was Dragonlance, I guess, but I'm not sure there was a Dragonlance setting per se. There were certainly the adventures. There was, yeah. So there, there was, there was, yeah, because the novels had the, had their maps and stuff. And that, and had the maps and stuff. And yeah, well, lots of uh, fantasy novels back then had maps in them. Yeah. And so there was just this assumption that if you were going to run D and D, you sort of had to roll your own. You either bought Greyhawk or you rolled your own. Yeah. And, and so I, a lot of friends of mine had really extensive maps that they made. And I remember, I mean, that was that was my window into fantasy. Two was maps. Like I loved, and whenever I was reading Lord of the Rings, I always referred to the map like every chapter, yeah. and was like, "Oh, that's where they are. That's what's going on." Yeah. And I did. I mean, I never did it on the wall, but I definitely had about you know, I want to say twenty to thirty different maps that I drew of fantasy you worlds. I bet it would have made up a wall oh. if you had took it. Probably would have, but they, yeah. almost all of them were on a, a sheet of eight and a half by eleven paper because that's all I, I had available to me. So I'd make one map and then be like, "All right, pff, next world," and like you know, draw the coastline and make up all the things into it. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of running the game. You probably have the same experience of like buying a fantasy novel and before you even read it you would just stare at the map for 20 minutes yes and then right? the you first just... novel i got that didn't have a map in it i was like what the what the fuck seriously <laughs> it's funny because i write uh, fantasy novels in my spare time and there is no map in there and people ask me for one and i'm like no you, i'm not going to give you one why <laughs> why because that's not what the, that's not what the story is about the story is not about the map well it's not the, the map is not about the, the map well it's we know about, tito's not gonna i'm not going to read your book i'm sorry that's fine i appreciate what they're playing the good news is unless i can go over your house and look at the map that you have uh, for it already. <laughs> you know, it's funny that I'm uh, on the, in the process of either, I don't know if you've seen Microsoft's new toy, the Surface Studio, but I... No, uh, I haven't, I, actually. It's a, it's a computer. It's, it's a, Microsoft has a new... Like, Microsoft is eating Apple's lunch, basically. They have made what in any other dimension would be a Macintosh. Mm. But here in this one, here in this universe, it's a Microsoft computer. It's an all-in-one, like an iMac, but the screen, it's 24-inch. It's a 24-inch, 28-inch screen that is... Uh, quad HD, so it's better than 4K, and it's all touchscreen. It's all made to do art on. It's called the Surface Studio. The screen goes from being a normal screen to lying flat, so you can draw on it. Ooh. And I'm like, I am going to buy one of those, and I'm going to draw. The, I'm going to draw them. I have. I know what the map of my world looks like, but I do not have it actually drawn anywhere. And now you can do it. And so oh, wow. now I'm going to now I'm like I'm going to get one of those. I'm thinking about pulling the trigger and getting one of those things and just using it as a just a Photoshop device and just drawing this map. What I have is I have flowcharts. A friend of mine wanted to run a game in my setting, and I'm like the thing is I'm not an artist and I don't have I don't have the tools for this. So what I did was I just made a huge flowchart of where it looks like um it looks like a computer diagram yeah. of where all the different regions in the world are and the, this is and how know, they're this connected is an ocean and this is a mountain range. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's it just out of, out of frustration with my own lack of artistic talent. <laughs> 
it's mostly time. I just don't have time these days. I had a huge map, like my friend John's, I had a huge map back in the 90s, and then uh, my car flooded out, and the map, like, literally, like, flood, like water. Ooh. And uh, the map got destroyed. And so that, that, that was three or four years down the tubes. Oh, man, but that mm. could have been such an artifact for your D&D players to be like. It would have been, yeah. It would have been great. It's a good adventure hook. Now they can find that map. That's true. Find the map. For your modern yeah, it's, it's, uh, That was back yeah. in the day where there was no such thing as like, I was doing it on paper, so there was no. No photocopies. Yeah, there's I, still nothing I couldn't save it. I couldn't save a copy. Doing it on your wall. Was, I still love this idea. Yeah. Well, oh, I mean, I think it's a great, like, if you've got a spare wall, just get just go down, <laughs> yeah, just go like down to an art world. Like, you can just go up and, like, doodle another island. Yeah, and that you could tell that's what he did. He would any t- whatever he felt like whatever details he felt like adding he could add them because the whole map was on his wall he could just get a pencil and just go I'm gonna add a river here I'm gonna work yeah. on this part of the world now I'm gonna work on that part and that's that uh, that's always something again that first impression I thought oh I guess this is how you do it and so I always wanted to do that right right so yeah this touches on some another recent video you did uh, about uh, exploring the world as a you know a storytelling device rather than a uh, in D and D, as rather than a D and D game that's about the characters and resolving. The yeah, characters. yeah, sure, yeah. That uh, notion of like, yeah. what is your what is your game about? Is it about the world and it's up to the characters to figure out how they fit into it, or is it about the characters and wherever they go, they're going to meet like, oh, this is where my father in law ended up, and now I'm going to resolve the fact that I was a I was a half elf and he abandoned me. And I don't think I ever. I mean, similar to you, uh, where the, 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 during that video, you kind of had the the epiphany of like, oh, that's why these these two games are different, or that, that's why these this is the things. It's because I think I'm I'm like you because of my obsession with maps and the geography and the cultures and the anthropological. You know, why are the elves this way? Why are the dwarves this way? I love that part of it. Um, and I, I mean, I also like character stuff, but I sometimes get lost in, uh, uh, you know, session to session to session, all being about character development when I'm like, I want to feel like I'm in a living, breathing simulation of a world. Right, right. As opposed to like, as opposed to a soap opera game, which is doesn't feel realistic, but it can be emotionally very satisfying. Soap operas are not believable. Right. But they are that kind of heightened melodramatic reality like Romeo and Juliet. What are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) But But if your character dies, it can come back to life. Every yeah, time. that's that's all the time. That's, yeah, also yeah, in D and D soap operas. Yep, that's as a or, twin. Like, I have often. I am. I am among my friends. I don't think I've talked about this in any of my videos. Among my friends, I am notorious for taking dead PCs and reanimating them as undead bad guys. Whoa! And uh, they and they hate that because now they have to fight their own their own characters. Yeah. And this character often now is uh, a vampire or a lich and knows everything that the, all the players' strengths and weaknesses. And uh, so that's a very soap opera plot style of thing to do. But yeah, I mean, my for whatever reason, I don't know why. I guess it's again probably because of the first dungeon. Masters I had, they stressed the ability, the kind of open world nature of their games where uh, one of my friends just literally pointed to a point on the map and said, who who lives here? Yeah. And our DM, our DM said, just some barbarian tribes. And my friend Dave said, I'm taking that place over. <laughs> Because he was like a 12th level wizard. And he's like, what are a bunch of barbarians going to do? Yeah. And so the the Dungeon Master did a whole adventure just for him where he did that. And to me, that was the juice of D&D. Like it was, the everything in the world was a tool for me to use however I wanted. Yeah. And I, that it, it's, it's taken kind of a long time for me to, and mostly watching Critical Role, to realize that probably if, there, if players are ever unsatisfied in my game, it's because they wanted that psychological, melodramatic, soap opera game and I wasn't giving it to them. Right. And I think I think you can I mean it's it's harder to do but I think you can do both. You can have 
that idea that you're in a uh, world that can be affected uh, by what the players do and the players' actions, and they can like grow and, and build and take over nations and things like that, while also having the chance for real character development. I feel like there's there's a balance there. It's always it's harder to Absolutely, do, yeah. and, you, and it goes back to what we were talking about about realizing what different players' wants and needs are uh, uh, as the DM, which is sometimes you know, works best when you're explicit about it, but you have to be empathetic as well to realize, you know, that, oh, this person is not engaging and, and why and figure out what that yeah. is. Um, I mean, I, being a dungeon master is a great, if you do it long enough, you will eventually develop a lot of empathy. Yes. You will very quickly, it's one of the things that I think Matt Mercer does, um, certainly better than I do, is that dude is super in touch with his player's internal monologue. Like, he knows before anybody watching on the stream knows that Grog is bored. <laughs> right, and not just bored in the sense of like it's it's funny or dramatic to be bored, but literally Travis is bored and doesn't understand why we're still talking about this, and you can see it happen in Matt's face before it happens to any of the other players. He knows, he knows exactly. He's super tuned in, yeah. And that is something that like I, I, it's a skill that I have developed over time is being able to tell why each player who comes to your table is there for a different reason, and it's up to you to figure out why is that person come to the table. And often the reason they tell you, they often they don't know why. And if they, if you ask them, they will give you a reason that it, they hadn't thought about it before. Right. They, they hadn't thought about it. And if they give you a reason, it's just a, the thing that popped into their head. And it's up to you to pay attention and see what works and what doesn't work. And, and you know, ah, now I know how to hook this player. Now I see it. I feel like that's why more than ever, not even just because of you know wanting there to be more dungeon masters so we can play more D&D, in our current climate, everybody needs to be a dungeon master. So they can be yeah, more empathetic. Right. I agree. It's super. It's a. It's a very like. A what you start like, off. No. It's a. It's this unique intersection of, of rampant egomania. Right. Like <laughs> I am going to run a game. I've created a world. Right. And you're like, okay, okay calm down. Uh, and then at the same time, you're like, all right, why? Why aren't these people having fun? Well, oh, that's an interesting question. As soon as you ask the question, why aren't these people having fun? You're. You are. You have to answer that by getting into their heads. Yeah. And once you've done that, now you've you've made this empathy empathetic bridge and you're like now I can understand why why did that work why did these players have fun why did that player get upset like I I think I told the story in one of my videos of a player who um, was having a great time he was just on he had never played D&D before he was a a guy at Turtle Rock I still work with I'm still I'm on a project right now with uh, Dan Phillips and he was just like the next day he's like hey can we play at lunch hey can we play after work like why aren't we (laughs) playing all the time like Matt Colville's been working here for a year and a half and this is the first what what the hell are we doing and uh, and then the next session another he was interrogating a prisoner and he was a paladin and the thief player just got bored and killed the prisoner just executed him and that was the end of Dan playing the game really and I yep because it wasn't until later when I asked him why uh, and he said I didn't realize Dungeons and Dragons was the kind of game where someone else could ruin my fun Mm. and I was like ah I had not I was this was a brand new group so I hadn't yet it hadn't it, things hadn't yet gelled. Yeah. I wasn't yet at the point where I was tuned into each player, and so I missed that critical moment where he went, "Oh!" and the light went off. Yeah, and I re, I still regret that. Well, what would you have done differently then? Were you- well, I certainly if I if I had understood that the reason Dan was having fun was because of this uh, the, the process of this interrogation. Uh, I, I would not have let the other player execute that character without having given the rest of the party the opportunity to stop them. Hmm. Right? Like, there's lots of ways, there's lots of, you can drill way down as a dungeon master and say, uh, when, when that person says they're, they're doing this thing, I am then free to say, okay, you see that character reaching for their sword. Yeah. Right? Now, that's not what they said they were going to do. They didn't say, I reach for my sword. They said, I kill that dude. 
right? But then it's up to me to go, okay, I'm going to take that statement and stretch it out right. into all the component bits that make it up. And it's up to me to decide where in the timeline does this happen and give the players the opportunity. And, and I've done that many times. Yeah. I've done that many times very successfully. And the player who was the uh, kind of the board player who's just going to act goes, oh, I didn't mean to like, okay, fine. No, it's fine. They don't want to... They weren't trying to rock the boat. They didn't want to piss everybody off. And when they see that the rest of the group is like, what are you doing? They go, oh, okay. And they back off. Usually. And yeah, uh, yeah usually. Yeah. I'm assuming they're not like a psycho. And so I didn't, um, I didn't do that. I was just, I was more concerned with moving things along. And I felt like, okay, well, this interrogation's right. probably gone about as far as it'll go. You thought right? you were and being empathetic to the player who, who did the, the executing. Correct. Yeah, correct. And I was like, well, to the whole table. I thought I was like, okay, this is, this has gone on long enough. No, really, I thought the player has learned everything there is to learn. Yeah. But that's not how they were seeing They weren't seeing it. That's a very gamist attitude. It is. Right. Okay. You have, you have explored all the dialogue trees. There's no more to explore. But that's not, that player, my friend Dan was, was in the experience. For him, it was real. Yeah, and so that was I. I, I wasn't tuned into that, so it was a failure on my part. I had a, uh, a similar experience in college. It was one of the few fits and starts I had with playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, before I started playing much more regularly. Uh, uh, we had a friend of a group of people who were in the house all playing together, and then the his girlfriend played Dungeons and Dragons, and we were like, "You need to run for us because we all want to play. We all love it. We're all kind of writers, creative people." Same thing. We all wanted to play, but couldn't find a group. And we finally assembled a group. We had like three or four sessions in, uh, and it, I forget what module it was, but uh, it was everybody sits down and there's food in front of you in the middle of a dungeon. And do you eat it? And we were all like, yeah, sure, we eat it. Why that not? That sounds super familiar. I think that is from a real adventure. It is from a real adventure. And she said she's run it many, many times before. And her boyfriend at the time was like, yeah, um, I'm going to eat the food. And he's, you know, okay, roll your saving throw. Uh, you're dead. Yep. It, it, was, <laughs> it was not a, you I know, would, you take damage. For the record, I would not have eaten it. Well, we didn't know. We were not <laughs> veteran enough players not to do that. We were just like, oh, that's just cool. She's not going to kill us like this. And then, you know, almost all the play the party died. And that was his breaking moment. That's when he was like, nope, I don't want to play this game. If oh. a simple, you know, what I thought was a fun improv yeah, taco <laughs> is going to just yeah. kill my character yes. that I'd spent the last four sessions and gotten really attached to. Yeah. This was also second edition. So there was, you know a little less leeway for, for raising dead and stuff. We were at the first level, so it was like not gonna happen. Well, you know, it's funny that like fourth, and and we, just circling around, I'm not yeah. surprised. I mean, it's uh, something that they went out of their way to try to remove from fourth edition. Yeah. That notion of like save or the save or die mechanic. Yeah. Um, but at least in a couple of inst instances, it's back, I think, in, in a couple of items and, and moments in fifth edition where it's like, look, there's the, the, the world of Dungeons and Dragons can be like, don't get too attached to your character. That's um, that's a uh, that's a down to the the DM is running a different game than the one they thought they were playing. Like, if you're running a game where you can save or die, mm -hmm. like the players, the, that, and that could just oh, I ate a taco and now I'm dead. It's like, well, that would have been nice to know that was possible at the beginning when I rolled my dude up. Yeah, and uh, I think like, that was I think that was what what broke in his head was like, oh, I thought this was you know a game where we're gonna storytell together, yeah. and then this feels like it, it's similar to your player being like, I didn't know another player was gonna be able to take it away. Was be able from to me. ruin my fun. Yeah, I had a player in my game who uh, told me that just as an aside, didn't didn't realize that he was breaking my heart when he said this. Mm. He said. Said, oh, I'm not rolling up another character. If this guy dies, I'm done playing. Well, yeah. And I was like, I was like, what? I, that couldn't. That was completely baffling to me. And there, his attitude was like, this is this for me. This is this character's story. Yeah. And so it, there, there was he. He couldn't. Um, the Venn diagram of Matt's D and D game and his character 100% overlapped. <laughs> so if that character died, then what? Like, and he thought the idea of like coming up with a new character who had to invent a reason to be in the party was silly. 
He's like, why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. And so we, he's one of my best friends. And so we worked on this problem for a little while. And then he's like, oh, okay. And he, we, he rolled up a new character explicitly to solve this problem. And this character, he has no, um, there's no, this character has no ambition. They haven't built up a spy network over the course of life where if he dies, he's going to be heartbroken. But as a result, he's having a lot of fun playing this character. Right. Because there's not this baggage of having... It's this weird thing where once you get to that point with your character where I've had characters die, it's not that big a deal anymore, and now I can just have fun playing the character and I don't have to worry about the burden of the narrative that I'm shouldering. Mm. And that is definitely kind of a light going on moment for some players is that they go through, <clears throat> they play very seriously for several weeks, and then they realize, you know what, you can just have fun. That is possible. Yeah. You can just play a druid that turns into a dinosaur and kills people and be like, that was amazing. Right, like yes, that was amazing. You are correct. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and this this goes into something you were talking about earlier about uh, uh, you know your perfect group as being a, a group that plays together anyway. Um, yeah, and in my mind, that, that little bit. Uh, uh, I disagreed a little bit because it was like, well, that that kind of negates convention play or like, you know, uh, oh, uh, Adventures sure. yeah. League play because that's some of the most fun I've had playing Dungeons & Dragons is when you have none of that baggage. You basically, you know, like, this is just a character that's only going to exist yep. for these two hours. Right. Have yep, as much fun it. with those two hours as you possibly can. And I was immediately freed of all a lot of the, not stigmas, but like, you know, things that were holding me back. And I'm like, here's a character I would never play in an ongoing session because I no, hate correct. him. Yes. But, this, but it turned out it was a lot of fun. But it was a lot of fun because I could play yeah. a priest that is, you know, really devoted to a religion that I, I think in the, if I was in that headspace, I think I would hate that over, you know, three years of a campaign playing it. But if it's because it was only the sure. finite amount of time, you know, you get like that sense of, oh, I can just no, do this and get it out because one of, yeah, one of my first DMs um, had a real problem with anytime we, he, he could not run an open world game or a sandbox, he could not run a sandbox game. Anytime we did anything that was not what the adventure expected, he would come up with some terrible, awful reason for us to have to do what the adventure said. <laughs> and it was really frustrating. And we got, initially, you don't even notice these things, but as we grew as players, we wanted more control over the narrative. And he was—he did not have that, he didn't feel like he had that control to give. He felt like that control existed in the adventure. And we went to a convention and we said, hey, let's, we're at a gaming convention, let's play D&D. &D. And, and John volunteered to run. He's like, sure, I'll run a game. And he gave us these pre-generated characters and he was running from an adventure. But because it wasn't his campaign, quote unquote, he was suddenly completely free to just improv. And if we went off script, he didn't care. He would just make stuff up and it was amazing. Mm. It, was, it was a blast for him and it was a blast for us. And it just, it took getting out of your comfort zone and just do, you know, playing a character you would never play before because he's only gonna be alive for the next two hours, why not? You know, running the kind of game that you would never have run otherwise yeah. because it's not your regular campaign. Yeah, I definitely think that like, I've played competitive D&D. &D. I mean, I've gone to, uh, I've gone to conventions and played and won tournaments. Remember when we so we spoke to Rain Wilson, uh, uh, the actor uh, from The Office, and that was his experience with D and D. He was going to conventions here in, in the Northwest, yep. North North Norwest Con. Con. Yeah, and he was like, yeah, where he played competitive D and D, and he's like, I think I I think I won. Maybe I got second place. Awesome. Of course he won. <laughs> yeah, of course he won. Yeah, yeah of course I was I like, that's won. amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we yeah. lost We lost one tournament to uh, a team who went through the same adventure we did, but whereas our bard at the end said, that was amazing, my character is going to write a song about what happened, the first place team's bard's player actually wrote a song. Oh. Nice. And performed <laughs> like, it. The player wrote a song. And we're like, okay, well, we win. <laughs> Here's my That's electric hard, guitar hard that I brought for this purpose. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We're like, well, look, you can't argue with that. Yeah. Like, That's, that, that dude wrote a song. So let me ask you a question, Shelly. Yeah? If you were going to run a game, yeah. what kind of game would you run? So I have run games, 
And, ah, okay. Um, my f- I know what my mistakes were, and I went into it really like trying to be super prepared, and I was really nervous, and I was playing for people like people from R and D, even like people who oh, obviously sure, yeah. know D and D way. And I was like an experiment. I want to try to do this, and the very second somebody didn't do what I thought they were going to do, I completely fell apart. I'm like, I don't even know what is in that door. I didn't I didn't even know there was a door there. And I just, I didn't know what to do. So it was awful and awkward and terrible. And then what, well, what happened after that? They like, we kind of fumbled through and like, I could just, it was just a really awkward feeling. I kind of felt like half of them felt bad for me, and they mm. were just like, well, let's just pretend we're having fun. And the other <laughs> half were like, this is my friggin' lunch hour. Like, really? Like, I could be doing something really fun and not, like, that. That's not what they That's what my sense was. And oh. it, like, totally just, like, ruined me. And I talked well, to them after, and they were like, no, I didn't think it was that bad. Like, they knew it was my yeah. first time. They knew I was experimenting. But. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and if you're especially like in that environment, I would imagine they'd be supportive. But I think that like um, you, definitely you are, we are all our own worst critics. Yeah, right? like true. we are all 100. I think anyone who is trying to lead a creative life as a, a writer or an artist or an actor, you're always you're always your own worst critic. But I think that what you're what you've described is definitely like. Um, the reason maybe I should do a video on this. The reason yeah. like I, I tell people in the beginning like don't know too much. Don't yes. don't wait don't wait until you've got everything worked out for your world to start because then you'll feel like I have to have all the answers. Yeah. And if you just say, look, I I know the name of the town and I know the name of the tavern and that's it. And if the players that if you force yourself early on when you just get started, if you force yourself to have to make stuff up, you develop those muscles very quickly and you learn, oh, I, I can just do this. I can just make stuff up on the fly and it will be fine and the players will have a great time. And that this is the thing uh, you learn if you take forensics, if you take speech and debate, they tell you like, don't memorize your speech. Because if you memorize your speech, then as soon as you screw up, which everybody does, yeah. you will have no recourse other than to sit there going through your notes trying to figure out where you left off. But if you just know your subject, don't write anything down, just know your, read a lot, think about it, know your subject, and then extemporaneously talk about it, then you kind of, you can't get lost. You can't suddenly not know what to say next because there was no script to memorize. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. That was actually the thing that liberated me because I did I did it again. I did it for the same group, and I just was like, I'm not even gonna open a book. I'm just gonna sit down and talk. And it was a thousand times better. Right. Um, but in, and afterwards, I remember talking to James Wyatt about this. Okay. And he said, so I was like, I don't know the rules well enough to be a good DM. And he was like, You don't need to know the rules. And I was like, that's weird coming from a guy who wrote those rules. Who wrote the rules, yeah. And he was like, no, you don't have to know it. You don't have to know it. You're the dungeon master. What you say happens. And if you don't know if you're supposed to roll the dice or how many dice or which dice or like what check, because I'm like, I was like, I don't know, like what kind of, if they're going to do something, like what am I going to roll to see if they succeed at? He goes, just roll some dice and just make it up. Like you just be free, be liberated. And it was completely that it was just a, a whole better experience because after that i dm'd for a group of of new people who have never played before and that's the best honestly that is the best and it's the best for a new dungeon master because they have no idea if you screw up it's like 
driving around with a person who's never been to your town before. If you, oh, yeah. if you get you lost, like they don't know. Like they're just, they've never <laughs> been here before. Yeah. And you're yeah. just like, oh, yeah, it just takes 45 That's minutes to That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. I always it, just, yeah, it just happens to take 45 minutes. Yeah, I'm not no, lost. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> how, would, how would you know if no, I were lost goodness. and never been here? The nearest grocery store is really only is 45 minutes away from my house. Haven't uh, we passed that street a few times? <laughs> like you have to do it three times. It's what it's an it's ordinance. A it's an ordinance in this town. They have three to and drive. Five PM. <laughs> I also think there's a there's a sort of unfortunate tendency. Like I think a, a great you know the players also have players handbooks. You yeah. know, the players the player like whenever I I routinely have my players tell me what they want to do, but they have no idea how that thing works. And they just sort of expect me to know everything. Yes. I'm like, no, 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 no. You look it up. In fact, let's all look it up. <laughs> let's yeah, together. Let's get everyone good. looking That's it up good. together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because that way you like, I, I am going to crowdsource learning the rules. I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out if you include all three books, the like 1,500 pages of rules. I'm going to say we're all going to look this stuff up together. And then as a result, we will all be learning the rules together. And that was kind of with fifth edition was the beginning of me just not giving a shit about whether or not I knew the rules. I'm like, I've played so much D&D at this point that it's I'm just going to run Dungeons and Dragons. Right, you'll and whenever it, it comes... Yeah, I, I still to this day ask my players to make like uh, sense motive checks, and <laughs> you know, like, and and they're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and and then it's they, they're like, "Do you mean like uh, intuition?" I'm like, "Yes, that, that's fine. Sure, yeah, roll that." <laughs> and because I have I have like four different editions skill lists in my head. Right. And Can you that, intuit direction like, to find out uh, where you're supposed to go? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Can, what, can I use acrobatics to do this? Oh, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Right. So there's a lot of just asking the players to shoulder some of that burden and the notion that, like, my job is a dungeon. Like, I don't even really think it's possible to know all the rules. Like, I remember I started off as um, a CCG designer. I was working on the Dune collectible card game. And, like, I don't think anyone was able to keep every single card in their head and every single answer to every question. All, no, it was not possible. Mm. The game was too complex. Chess, yes, easy. Uh, uh, but as you go up the rung, like, there are just too many rules. And eventually you're going to get to the point where learning a new thing means you just forgot something. And now you've got to look it up when it comes up. And so just relaxing and just going with it and saying, listen, my job is to keep the train moving. Right to keep the train running down the tracks. Yep. It's not necessarily to be the guy that knows all the rules. Then I think that frees you up to have a lot more fun. So when you're DMing for new people, are you, are you quickly getting a sense of of you know the, the empathy that you were talking about of like this person just desperately wants to kill someone and this person is really excited about role playing and and, and do you try to tailor their first experience? Oh a sure, little, yeah. Like fudge the rules a little. I mean, it, it's something that I can do because I've done this now. Yeah. Like I said, for like thirty years, so I, I get a pretty good read off of a new player, figuring out like what are they in it for? Are they bored? Let's have a combat start. Do they care about combat? Do they want a grid? Right. Uh, that kind of stuff I can generally tell pretty quickly, and also just like there's like a dial of how much talking am I going to do compared to them, and that's something where each player that dials in a different place. Right, and that's something where NPCs and role-playing the NPCs makes a huge difference because if this player is shy right. and doesn't know doesn't know what they can do and doesn't know what their options are, that's fine. The NPC can do most of the talking until you feel comfortable, and then the NPC might. Add, there's a great. I did a, a stream with my friend Gertz. It was a one-on-one. -on -one. You can watch it on YouTube. It was just me and Gertz playing D and D. And first of all, number one comment I got was, "Holy crap! I literally did not know you could play D and D just a DM and one person. <laughs> they didn't know that was an option. They just." Uh, They'd only ever seen it played with a group. And and I was, it, it turned out that I did not know this, but it turned out that Gertz is very much kind of a um, an audience member, 
right? And so I ended up, and that has that has that has become true. That has obtained throughout the entire campaign is that he's not this guy who wants to take charge and make the story about his character. He's perfectly happy to sit back. He's, he gets a huge kick out of just watching all this stuff play out yeah. and participating in it in some way. And so it turned out that the NPC that I had rolled up for him ended up doing a lot of the talking. But I also then, I was like, this can't be how the game goes. It can't be just me doing all the work. And so I would ask, I would have the NPC ask Gert's questions that there was no answer for other than him role-playing. Like he had to role-play the answer. And that got him out of his shell and got him got him talking, got him speaking in character, and that was a lot of fun. And that was just a little dial I had of, of how much talking am I going to do? Who is doing the talking? I'm going to have this NPC ask Gertz questions that are personal, they're psychological, where there's no die roll. There's no die roll you can make that will answer this. <laughs> and that had a huge impact on his kind of getting into character. That's cool. That is good. That's yeah. Cool. Got running through the gauntlet a little bit, mm-hmm. being like, "Here, now you you have to get outside your box a little bit." Yeah, I mean, it's, having an NPC ask a player an introspective question, like, "Like, why are you an adventurer? Why did you become a paladin?" Mm-hmm. Right? These are these are. There's no there's nowhere on your character sheet. You can there's no. Don't bother looking down there. The answer is not there. You've got to come up with the answer in your head, and it, it's often the first time the player has ever wondered those things. Right. And so you get really interesting answers from players when they do that. It does, and it, it, it really helps as a player. I remember the second DM I ever had was the first one who ever said, asked us question before we even sat down to play, he said, I want you guys to, to write a paragraph about your character, and then I want you to figure out how you're connected to one other person in the group. And it could just be a really loose connection, like, you know, I, he was a bartender, one, you know, like whatever. Like, it's, it, does, it could be your brother and sister, or it could just be like, I met him in a store one day. But we it forced us to kind of to go out to find each other to like interact with each other. I'm like, I want to be connected to you. Here's our story. Right. And then, you know, they were connected to someone else. And like it, it, it forces made, you and it, for some players this is the first time they've ever done that. It forces yeah. you to think about your character besides your character sheet. Exactly. Like, and like there's to no have way that to answer this story. And yeah. I realized all the cuz I you know I had made my character be like this animal activist and her parents were fur traders and she like, you know, left them at an early age and vowed to like you know right their wrongs and every totally not autobiographical not at all all. (laughs) my parents are not fur traders (laughs) that's the one thing they work in floor covering but that is sometimes you can put fur on the floor (laughs) i'm just saying they don't sell bearskin rugs as far as i know (laughs) as far as i know um but it was like every we didn't go off on adventures that had to do with you know saving animals or anything but every thing that I did as a character, I always had that backstory in, in my head and it really helped inform my decisions and made me feel more comfortable role playing and then having that that instant ally at the table, that person that you're connected to, you know, that you can kind of lean on them when you're, you know, starting off and I just yeah. thought it was it was a good good tip for um a group of fairly newish people to yeah I think there's a lot of like um, asking you can and you can see like again I'm gonna reference critical role because it's kind of one of the best examples you can see like Matt did that with his players and they all wrote these backstories and he has spent the last three years mining those backstories like they just fought the dragon that killed two of the characters mothers Right. Yeah. So that's like mm-hmm. that's they've spent the last, you know, now a couple of years going down those roads and mining that backstory. I tend not to do that yeah, that's because I tend to be deliberately trying to to give the players the experience of what it was like to play the game in like the 80s. And and that's tricky because obviously like 
I could run probably a better, more, more, a, a game with more depth and emotion in it if I were running a strictly modern game. But I like that feeling of like, you've never played before. This is what it would have been like to play in 1985, 1986. And kind of throwing people into the deep end and saying, we're just going to swim. Right, right, but that's not all. I mean, it's not necessarily like uh, tem- temporal is the uh, thing. I think I think it's going back to what you're talking about with the you know soap opera versus uh, uh, simulation, you know, yeah, type thing. Right. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the '80s probably more tended towards the simulation and or yes. dungeon crawly, yeah, uh, tactical play. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. that's that's what you're talking about. But yeah, like I feel like there's there's there, there's sessions and you know campaigns that will swing. They, those back and forth ways. But one thing I wanted to ask you before, because uh, we actually are getting, you know, I, mean, I feel like we could talk forever, but I mean, that's, because, that's because we're talking really fast because we're talking to Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what you're saying. What are you trying to say? <laughs> uh, nothing, not at all. Uh, just remember, I've been watching your videos. Um, <laughs> they're awesome. I love that you can pack all that content in, but I mean, you know. People I, keep saying, they're like, yeah. dude, you need to slow down. I'm like, motherfucker, do you know how long yeah. this Pause. video would be if I talked like a normal person? <laughs> like, this would literally be three hours. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, but you've mentioned uh, the stronghold rules you've been working on uh, in the oh, last yeah. couple of videos, and that's really fascinating to me because I feel like it really it, 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 people who are into simulation kind of type play games, those kind of rules are really what sells the game world as a possibility. And I wrote a, a game called Adventure Conquer King System, uh, which was basically like an OD and D, you know, brought up a little bit to. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. wait. You are the author. Of Adventure or Conqueror King. I'm one of the one of the authors. Whoa. Probably probably like the third place author on it. I, I okay. I contributed a lot of uh, ideas and was in the playtesting group and kind of you know helped package it into a thing. I mean that is a that is a I have it's it's one of those things where like it's not I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not in college anymore. So I don't and also I am somebody who can monetize my free time, which is a huge privilege that by is the a big way. Thing. Um, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. So as a result. I, I basically, I don't get to play games the way I used to, right? It used to be, I played D&D more than once a week and other RPGs. More than and once a week, it, yeah. if I could go back to that era, now, Adventure Conqueror King is one of those games that like I would love to play, but I will almost certainly never get to play. Nice. Well, maybe uh, because uh, I just it, don't have time. If you come up to Seattle, we can we can play a game. Uh, oh, I, that'd be fantastic. I can you through. Although it's, it, 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 it works as one shot, but I think it... Where that system works the best is with uh, campaign play because it really does come sure, from yeah. you're nothing, you know, you're just a, a, a you know low level adventurers to to becoming you know yeah, rulers no, I, of I a mean, world. I love Adventure Conqueror King as much as I can love something I haven't actually played yet. <laughs> like, I think it's just a great product and a great example right. of like what the. Um, the OSR can can do what it can include, and we always, you know, said in kind of the pitch was that you know a lot of early D and D stuff uh, yep. mentioned strongholds, mentioned yep. the no fact rules that, for it. Yeah, it just said, and then it was like, when you get to seventh level, you're going to start a keep and become a lord, and you're like, okay, what does that mean exactly? Exactly. And if you were Gary Gygax or fucking Tim Cask, then you just you knew because you've been playing war games your whole life, and so you had a you had this built in kind of a lot. That's one of the things I love about this channel that I have is the opportunity to kind of explain to people how much of this game is a tradition that is not written down anywhere. It's just handed on from one generation to the next. And those those sentences in the original uh, Player's Handbook and DM's Guide, that yeah. when you hit your named level, in other words, when, when you were a fighter and you hit seventh level and your title, your level title was now Lord. fighter, yeah. the expectation was you were going to start a stronghold and that was it. 
Right. It was like it was like a, a hyperlink to a book you didn't have. Right. And, and you got, like, what and you is two D? You know, six guys, and they yeah. came to you, and that was about like right. That was all you really really understood. And so yeah, yeah we wanted to make sure that we had there was rules to support that. There was an economy. There was you know yeah. uh, uh, you know we used uh, gold pieces as XP, so that definitely made you have lots of gold wealth. pieces as XP was a hugely I remember hugely controversial thing when I was gaming in the eighties. Yeah. And I had a, I had a dungeon master who did not use that rule, and so if we were literally six level for two years <laughs> because we got lots of gold didn't count as xp and so he he actually ran out of adventures to run for us and we're like john you got to give us xp for gold man yeah. otherwise we're gonna level up uh anyway yeah sorry so, go ahead. well yeah we just we just love having that system of being able to like oh you'll have this wealth you can invest it in something and something that means meaningful in the world so when you were talking about writing strongholds uh for for fifth edition yeah. Uh, that just got all my my wheels turning. And so, what's what, what are you doing? What are you making? How's it working? Well, I'll tell you. Like it, it's an <laughs> amalgam. I mean, this is a system that I've been using and adapting on and off ever since AD and D Second Edition, when I kind of was not crazy in love with Birthright's uh, version. I love Birthright, one of my all time favorite deities. Uh, probably the only D and D setting that I've genuinely fallen in love with. Mm. And I think that's the trick is if you're going to buy a prepackaged setting, you have to fall in love. Yeah. It can't just be a solution to a problem. It has to be something that you really have this kind of romantic attachment to. And I love the setting of Birthright, the rules, eh. And so having played in lots of different Dungeon Masters games, all of whom had their own house-ruled versions <laughs> of how kind of leading, founding a stronghold, leading a nation, raising an army, and fighting war, these things are all related. Uh, I just picked and chose the ones, the bits I liked the most. And that was like 1996. And I remember had a whole, I did, a, there's a forum called RPGNet where yeah. I posted my fourth, these the same rules, but for fourth edition. And people went crazy. They were like, this is amazing. When is this going to be a product? And I basically just published all the rules for free online and said, you guys use this. There was no idea that of monetizing it. Unfortunately, that thread still exists, but all of the art references are now long dead broken links. Oh, no. And I have no idea where the images went. Otherwise, I would just re-upload them. And so there's a, it's a, the, my stronghold rules are kind of an amalgamation of lots of different ideas, including that very first Dragon magazine that I read back in 1985. With the Paladins. The, uh, with, that, with the Paladins in it. Each one of these, I don't know if there were other if there were other supplements that did this, but each of these paladins, when you hit named level and founded a stronghold, you got to roll on this chart. And this chart was crazy. It was a percentile, <laughs> it was percentile dice, and like there was a pretty good chance that you were gonna get four to forty farmers who showed up. And you're like, okay, that's uh, okay. What does that then mean? I've got farmers. How do All I right, use these great. farmers? And there's no rules for what farmers, so this is something my, my rules do that thousands don't, is that if you, you can still attract farmers, but it's much less likely because that's kind of weird. But also, like, now the farmers do something. Like, farmers generate revenue for you. Like, a tailor increases your, gives you bonuses to your charisma checks and stuff like that because you look great. And, and then blacksmiths let you, if you get blacksmiths as followers, they let you uh, craft magic arms and armor. And there's all these rules now for, uh, and one of the things that happened in, the, in that paladin chart was if you rolled in the 90th percentile, you could get like a stone giant that showed up and said hey you're super awesome let's be pals <laughs> i want to be on your right? side right yeah exactly like it was not like a, a follower was kind of a broad a broad umbrella under which lots of different things could fall yeah. including people who were literally pledged to your service but also people that were technically allies and so that chart and that idea of founding of having something to spend your money on for one thing because right. to us money was always kind of like score Right, having a lot of money meant you were you were winning, and now I want to spend it on something. So I'm going to found a stronghold, and then the act of like it's not the, the conceit, which is purely something my friends and I came up with, 
that it's not yours until you've defended it in war. Yeah. Right? Like, if you decide, I am going to build a keep here, other people are angry at you and saying, well, no, 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 what are you doing? This is our area. And so they're going to come and they're going to attack you and you have to defend it. And that requires armies and that requires units. And so it's this, it's the first of what will probably be a series of maybe two or three products um, that are about how to raise strongholds and become a lord and attract followers and gain, you get unique special abilities based on what class, what your class is. Um, I think like the paladin stronghold, he gets the paladin gets new ways to use their divine smite or something. I don't remember off the top. So of how would you? So how did you solve if you were going to run this in fifth edition? How would you solve the uh, 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 XP as GP problem? Because I feel like a lot of DMs. I mean, maybe it would just have to be the style of campaign. You'd have to award more gold pieces or or, or whatever. But like, I feel like there's a little bit of a, uh, a shortage of of actual monetary wealth in, in I have the opposite problem because I run a lot of old school uh, adventures oh okay and so it's like you run Night Below for instance which um, is sadly not uh, I have to I had to, every time I do it I have to go buy a new copy off eBay and it's each time it's more expensive because I use all the players handouts I actually use them I cut them up and hand them out and and you nice. found this one on a on a piercer, so I take a pen and stick it through the thing. And now, now if I'm going to run this adventure again, I've got to go buy that module again. <laughs> and uh, it's a great adventure, but like you get filthy rich going through that. You got like those original adventures, those TSR adventures from the 80s and 90s. They were super liberal with magic items and cash. And I just like the idea that the players get to feel rich as yeah. part of the fantasy. That's part of the fantasy of I've got a million gold pieces. It's like, yeah, that's crazy. Now, but th that's a great fantasy. But now I, with the stronghold rules, want to back that up and say, here's how much it costs to found a stronghold. And there's upkeep. And there's all these add-ons you can get. And all these different followers make these things cheaper. So you want to roll on the chart. And every time you every time you improve your stronghold, you get to roll on the chart again and attract more followers. And you get this great cycle of spending money to get followers who help you save money. So you want to build more stuff. And that costs money. And so that's ideally <laughs> one. And, and raising units. Eventually, the you know book two will come out and you're going to want to raise an army and that's going to cost money nice. and so this is uh this is just a, an excuse I, I really want money to be something that players uh you know like having and see as valuable and can use in ways that yeah exactly the there's a there is an obvious use for it yeah and uh because so i think that's, that's the that's, worst is when you're like hey, here's a thousand gold pieces and people are like oh well i can't buy magic items you know because that, yeah, exactly. that was third edition i can't do that now you know and like so yeah actually having something to spend on is a good reason to start using it as rewards and all that so yep. when this is all done please put it up on the dungeon masters guild so that i can download it and use it <laughs> well i mean it's uh, I, I i got about halfway done i think but then i got sidetracked by a a top secret project that I can't talk about yet, but hopefully oh. we'll be able to soon. That is. So you're working on you're working on an RPG supplement for Top Secret. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I would love that. There's always <laughs> been a there's always been a huge component of espionage in my games. Uh, so nice. that's and, and the stuff I write. So that's that would be fantastic. But uh, so that, unfortunately, like a a paying gig has to take precedence over my hobby. Psh. And so uh, hopefully that'll be done in just I would hope another week or two, and then all hands. This is crazy. Like the number of things I have promise people is <laughs> the the list is growing and it's like guys i have a i have a full-time job <laughs> like this is all stuff i do in my spare time so it's the stronghold rules are close to my heart i've been using these in one form or another for the past like i would say uh 20 years 1996 around and so i have a high degree of confidence that they are playable and uh yeah we will uh, they'll they'll certainly be out this year uh if not oh, okay. you know hopefully by like um uh, in the next, I would say, three or four months. Awesome. All right. I can't wait for that. 
Matt. Thanks for asking about that, though, by the way. I no worries. It. I, it, it just, it, yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. nerd so. out on that for I know. another 20 right. minutes. We really could. <laughs> we really <laughs> could. <laughs> Probably, yeah. uh, but unfortunately, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming to uh, to talk to us. Is there any, uh, uh, well, I mean, I, you just mentioned you have so many different projects. So, yeah, why don't you plug a few and tell yeah, us. Yeah, plug where... those novels, too, because we didn't even get to talk about them. We didn't get to talk about the novels. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if on. you go watch uh, any of my D&D videos, at the end of each video, I say, you know, I don't have, I don't run commercials in front of my videos. I don't, which YouTube hates, by the way. They really wish I would. I would they're monetize. like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. They're like, you're insane. I'm like, yeah, but I have a product to sell. So at the end of the video, I say, check any of my videos. Check the link. There's a link to my. Uh, check the description box. There's a link to my Amazon page. I write uh, fantasy novels in my spare time. I, tr- I describe my car as being the little metal box that takes me from the place where I write about ray guns and rocket ships to the place where I write about dragons and orcs. <laughs> and that's right. the difference between work and home for me. Is that I write science fiction stuff at work and fantasy. Nice. I've got two novels, and eventually, after the strong, after the top secret project, and after the stronghold rules, and probably after something else I've forgotten about, I will get to the third book. Fine. <sighs> All right, finally. So we have time to read books one and two. So where's you the, do? Yes, your YouTube channel is what? It's uh, it's I think it's M Colville. So YouTube slash M Colville, and if you just type in "running the game" into Google, I think I'm the number one hit. Ooh, nice. And. Uh, so that's that's pretty. People are telling me, oh, you should put D and D. You should search engine optimize and make sure the word D and D is in your. I'm like, I don't think I need to do that. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I, I don't want to dissuade you, but uh, it would be hard. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's. I think that just you know, that right now if you just search for running the game, my videos pop up, and really all I want is people to feel like that they can be a DM and it would be a lot of fun because it is. It's not hard. Awesome. Are you on the on the Twitters anywhere? I am. I'm at Matt Colville at Twitter. I'm super active on Twitter, by the way. So you if are. you follow me on Twitter, you will get to re- you will probably get I get it depends on the question. People sometimes people ask like questions that would take hours to answer. And so it's I, I end up unfortunately as I get more and more followers, I have to ignore more and more people. <laughs> but I try to it's <laughs> just reality. Life. It's you know, I, hey, would you please read my three hundred page campaign setting and tell me what you think? No, I'm not no, going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got stuff to do. That's like going uh, up to like Steven Spielberg. You're like, can you watch my can you, four hour yes, exactly. anthology film that I made? Exactly. Like I, I I'm super active on Twitter and I love interacting with people. So if you want to come by and at me, I encourage you to do so. Oh, at I me, already bro. am following you. Okay. I know. I was. I, funnily enough, I was following you for for many years before I even uh, uh, was watching your videos. So it's it's crazy. Oh, awesome! So thank you so for being such a like a big part of the community and always yeah. talking about D and D. I feel doing like great work. I've known you. Hey, name. thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're the best, Matt. Talk to you soon. You're the best. All right, thanks. All right, bye. Bye. Oh my God, Matt, that was a lot. I feel like I, I feel like exhausted. Oh my, I was going to say I'm exhausted. Yeah, Woo. I feel like I was just dungeon mastering uh, for for six hours. Do you think he talks that quickly when he's DMing? No, I, I I don't know. We'll have to see. Maybe we should ask them next time we have them on. I mean, it's like fat. It's energetic. It's not like I don't know what you're saying. I, feel I, like I understand him. I feel like some people talk fast, and I don't understand them. But right. with him, he's so good at. Uh, he's like a theater person. Exactly. We didn't even talk about theater because he's got like, a little yeah, theater. I think him. so. I think he does too. I think so. Well, that was awesome. Thank you guys so yeah, much for listening to it all, uh, including our incredibly amazing uh, segment, uh, which we haven't introduced yet, but we will when we'll record it after this. <sighs> Dungeons and Dragons is a game. You can find out about it on DungeonsandDragons.com. Uh, also on Twitter, follow Wizards underscore DND. Tales from the Yachting Portal is coming uh, uh, April 4th, uh, March 24th in game stores. Uh, go check it out. Buy it. Run some of these dungeons. Uh, use some of the advice that Matt talked to you about today, today. and run it. 
Shelly. Yeah. I feel like, you know, after your, 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 you know, a couple of sessions, I feel like you got to take it back up again. Maybe you should run Tomb of Horrors no. for me. Oh, maybe. Maybe because it's Tomb of Horrors. No, because yeah. I feel like you are too familiar with it. I don't, I, secret, yeah. never, never run it, never read it. Oh, maybe. Yeah, it's more just like I know about it. I know it's a thing. I will say that I am inspired by the world building. Like, just the thought of, like, when he was talking about his friend that um, has a folder and just puts stuff in, like, for me, that's Pinterest. But yeah. Just thinking, like, you can do anything. I know. You can just build a world where anything, any like, things are made out of candy and, like, unicorns exist. Yeah. And... It's, I mean, I didn't get to talk about it uh, in the thing, but that was uh, when I my first DMing uh, was done. Uh, we had a digital project- projector in the room, uh, and we <laughs> used it for maps and stuff. But I was like, we can use this for totally more than maps. So yeah. I pulled uh, real photographs of ruins and, oh, like, Stonehenge-type things and mountains and things. And I used it as being like, okay, this is where you are. Yeah, you see so this. very helpful. Yeah, and that was it was research for me, but it also players were like, oh, yeah, I really feel like I'm right in, in where I am, yep. that thing right now. And I would just like to say that the world that I just created, I'm like, <laughs> it's pretty much Candyland. Like, I like died on the vine there. <laughs> yeah, these things are made of candy, and there's unicorns. I feel like I I can do better than that. Okay. You know, it worked for Candyland and My Little Pony. <laughs> I, I think been, you're cool. I have been playing a lot of Candyland lately. It's 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 a terrible game that I love to play with my children oh, yes. to it's teach a, them how what colors are and candy and turns. That's Ugh. like the whole idea about turns is like really hammered it's, home yeah. in that. Yeah. That's and about like all. taking the shortcuts. And sometimes you go backwards in life. Yeah. Sometimes life sucks and you mm-hmm. go backwards. Mm-hmm. You got a deal. But yeah. you end up on Candy Mountain. Right. All right. On that note. I feel like we're in Candy Mountain right now. And uh, we will talk to you guys. Uh, I'm uh, at Greg Tito on Twitter. Follow uh, me for all hot takes <laughs> on current events but not really <laughs> mostly what's going on in my XCOM game what about you Shelly follow me at Shelly Moo if you want to hear what's happening on the best <laughs> <laughs> we're really selling this you guys we also talk about D&D sometimes sometimes we do. and Avalon Hill and Avalon Hill follow Avalon Hill at Avalon Hill 2 the number electric boogle <laughs> thanks everybody <laughs> we'll see you next week